Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome. I hope uh, things in your neighborhood are going okay. And uh, today we are going to talk about something that has definitely been on delay media a lot. And to help me kind of wade through all this, I'm, I'm happy to welcome my frequent co-pilot on these uh, episodes, uh, Jake Galdo. So Jake from CEI, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Not at all. And thank you for, as always, taking time. Jake is definitely the guy who keeps this podcast afloat and running. So without him, we wouldn't really have one. So uh, thanks, as always, for being here. What we're going to talk about today is the USPSTF draft. And Jake and I were talking about this before we started recording. It is draft statements concerning primary prevention using aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease. And so, and this has absolutely been all over the lay media. And this is something that obviously is going to affect, I think, both pharmacists and providers and, and what we kind of think about stuff. So we thought it would be a good, good idea to kind of talk about this even before they haven't come out with the very, very final recommendations. There's no reason at this point to think there's going to be a huge change. So these probably will be the final evaluations. Why is this important? Because tons of people have cardiovascular disease in the United States. Uh, it is still, even in the last two years, the leading cause of mortality in the U.S. It counts for about one in three deaths. And about 600,000 Americans actually have a first heart attack and 600,000 patients experience a first stroke in any given year. So as I, when I teach uh, cardiovascular disease to my students, I often say, you know, it's, it's not only the leading cause of death, it's a leading cause of morbidity as well. And Americans will seem to take just about anything they can to try and prevent a heart attack, except eat right and exercise. They'll do just about anything else but that, it seems like. So there's tons of people out there taking aspirin. I have to think that there's quite a few of them out there who have never discussed it with uh, any healthcare professional, including their provider or their pharmacist. They've just said, hey, I see on TV to take a heart-healthy aspirin. So what are the guidelines, this updated draft guideline basically saying? Again, remembering that this is primary prevention. So this is not for people who have known cardiovascular disease, who've had a stroke or had a heart attack. But what the new top-line guidelines basically say is that in patients ages 40 to 59, with a 10% or greater 10-year cardiovascular risk that is done on the ASCBD calculator, that the decision to initiate low-dose aspirin use for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease who have this risk uh, should be an individual one. So basically, talk to your, your provider, talk to your pharmacist, and talk about the net benefit versus risk. But uh, evidence to date basically suggests that there is a small, it, it is a benefit, but it is a small benefit in, in this group, and that there is a risk of bleeding, as always, even with low-dose aspirin. I'm, I'm trying to get away from calling 81 milligram aspirin baby aspirin since we don't give aspirin to babies anymore. So people who are not an increased risk of bleeding and willing to take a low-dose aspirin are more likely to benefit. So again, if you uh, were to sit down with a patient and do the ASCVD calculator, find that, yeah, they have a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. They don't have a history of, of peptic ulcer disease. They are not on anticoagulants. They're not have alcohol use disorder, anything else that would, that would increase their risk of GI bleeds in particular 
that might be the person who'd be likely to benefit. But the real thing that I think the lay media is really hung on to is, is the second point that for adults age 60 and older, that the US PSTF recommends against initiating low-dose aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in patients age 60 or older. So again, for people who have no known history of coronary disease, the task force does not recommend a low-dose aspirin. Now, you may ask yourself, well, who is this US PSTF people? I hear about them all the time. They seem to, to you know, kind of do these pronouncements from on high all the time. Well, it is an, an important piece of the US healthcare system, and it is steeped in evidence-based medicine because they are actually part of AHRQ, and they're part of Health and Human Services. So it's, it's a government agency and a government agency that really does take a look at, at, at the literature. They have very strict standards for studies they look at. They have very strict guidelines for the recommendations and the level of recommendation they make. And in fact, we had actually done a, a episode a while ago on their recommendations for diabetic screening. This is something that it's probably one of the more important task force that you want to listen to when it comes to preventative health care. And they do release multiple guidelines and multiple recommendations throughout the year. And, and some of them are pretty important for pharmacists. You know, they do deal with one like this one, pharmacotherapy. Some are more in the diagnostic realm. So they're more for providers. They just in the last couple of years came out with recommendations for CT screening for smokers. So, you know, should we do routine CT scans in patients with smoking to, to start looking for early lung disease? Or, or lung cancer, they really do run the gamut of general internal medicine as far as screening is concerned. So, you know, this isn't sponsored by big pharma or anything along those lines. It really is a high level evidence uh, and I think very transparent. And it's why they, they release these draft guidelines to get comments from people about stuff. So you can really kind of, you know, put your trust in USPSTF when they make the most of the recommendations. Now, that doesn't mean that those recommendations are set in stone and it doesn't mean that they're a one size fit all sort of thing. So we're going to talk a little bit during during this about some of the criticisms that have already kind of cropped up in the cardiology world about these guidelines and, and talk about that. But to kind of dig into the evidence itself and to talk a little bit about how this affects them, I think a particular community pharmacist, I'm glad, like I said, Jake Galdo is here with us. So Jake, what did you think when you read all this? And again, as a practicing community pharmacist, how do you think this is going to affect how you recommend aspirin, you know, making recommendations for aspirin use? Thanks, Jeff. And I think, you know, the thing that jumped out about this to me is this was a draft. Usually when USPSTF has like a publication um, or recommendation, it gets published in the science literature, you know, in JAMA, New England Journal, things like that. And since this was a draft, it's almost like some news outlets picked it up and then they ran with it. Right. And so all of a sudden I was getting these push notifications from, from Washington Post, Wall Street Journal saying, don't do uh, low dose aspirin. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm calling my dad. I'm like, hey, aren't you on this? Like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, do I need to stop it? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't read anything. Like, let me pause. I'll get back to you. And I got to I gotta go read it. And I think that that was the hardest part from a community pharmacy perspective is that we had the lay media almost pick this up before anyone else did to right. help us understand what's going on. So that was kind of like a, whoa, let's slow down and let's read what's going on. And so when you dig deeper into it, you know, the thing that jumps out to me is that we really have to have kind of like a bifurcation of the conversation. We need to focus first on benefit. What is the benefit of taking low-dose aspirin? Where do we see how it is helpful? And USPSTF looked at 13 randomized controlled trials that reported the benefit of aspirin use for primary prevention. And again, I can't stress, like you've been stressing, primary prevention enough. And they had about 160,000 people over those different trials, and they saw very, very modest benefit. And modest is like, they saw that we had a decrease in heart attacks, we had a decrease in strokes, but we didn't necessarily have a decrease in 
cardiovascular death. Right. So we're starting to see like, I can prevent a stroke, I can prevent a heart attack at a primary prevention level, but then there's always the risk. And I think that we fail to think about the risk of therapy oftentimes because we're like, ooh, drugs available, it's risk-free. Not quite. There are always risks associated with our care. And so that's what they did is they then dug into the data on the risks associated with low-dose aspirin. And I got to tell you, Jeff, you know, from my perspective as a community pharmacy, I kind of err on that fallacy of, ah, it's just a low-dose aspirin. It has a misnomed name of being a, a... baby aspirin, it is perfectly safe. Everyone should take it. No risks whatsoever. However, USPSTF found in 14 randomized controlled trials looking at CBD primary prevention that there were bleeding harms associated with aspirin. And it went anywhere from having total major bleeds to gastrointestinal bleeds, extracranial bleeds, hemorrhagic stroke, and intracranial bleeds. And those don't sound fun to me. (laughs) So before I keep like rambling on, I kind of want to push it back to you and have you help me understand what a GI bleed really is like, because that's not something I see, even though I'm probably culpable in it happening. You're right. I think that obviously two GI bleeds are something we're going to see more in the inpatient setting. You know, the good news is that it's been a long, long time before I've seen anybody die of gastrointestinal bleeding. You know, nowadays, uh, at least in the United States, with very quick endoscopic treatment and the ability to give people blood products and basically stabilize their hemodynamic status until the until a gastroenterologist can get down there, take a look, and actually perform some sort of therapeutic maneuver if they find a bleeding ulcer or they find something along those lines. That the good news is that, yeah, it's been a long, long time since I've seen somebody die from a GI bleed. It still does happen, of course, but, but it's been a long time since I've seen that happen. Unfortunately, the head bleeds and hemorrhagic strokes that I see, and again, yes, I mean, it's, it's a common no, but you know, will I see you know multiple cases in a year of someone who it seems like the only reason that they came in with a head bleed or they came in with a hemorrhagic stroke was that they were on a low-dose aspirin. They didn't, weren't in a trauma. They didn't fall and hit their head. They weren't on warfarin. They weren't on a NOAC. They weren't on, you know, they, you know, anything along those lines. And, and that's sometimes the only thing that happens. So, I mean, the overall risk, you know, is, is as, as they point out, is not gigantic, but it's absolutely there. And I think that's the point is that they're trying to make to balance this risk versus benefit. In secondary prevention, the benefit of aspirin is well known, well established, and quite large. That the, the effect size is quite large for aspirin, especially considering how cheap it is and things along those lines. And so when you measure that risk versus benefit, the harms that are still there with aspirin don't come close to the benefits of preventing recurrent cardiovascular events in those patients. And as you point out, probable decrease in cardiovascular mortality. We have no at least the evidence that they present and and stuff I've read doesn't really show that same level of benefit for aspirin. So you have this lower level of benefit for aspirin and primary prevention, yet that's still the same level of risk. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about because this task force does measure things in qualities because they're trying to quality adjusted life years for benefits. That's almost exactly what they found. And, and what results were in their analysis was that, you know, the bottom line was that life years were negative in most cases of people starting aspirin between 60 and 69. So there was a negative quality. So they actually didn't gain any qualities, they actually lost qualities. It wasn't a lot, but they actually lost some qualities in patients for primary prevention, but we can't really emphasize it enough that for, for primary prevention, they actually did not find a lifetime benefit in quality. They actually found, uh, found uh, that lifetime net life years were negative in most cases for patients starting aspirin between ages 16 and 69, and that stopping aspirin at five-year intervals between 65 and 85 in their analysis 
showed little advantage compared to, to no use, basically. So again, we're not talking about secondary prevention. And please, anyone listening, hearing, hearing our voices here, absolutely continue your aspirin if you have a, a known history of, of cardiovascular disease, stroke, or MI, or I would argue peripheral vascular disease as well. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who doesn't have any of that and just wants to take a low-dose aspirin a day. So the point isn't necessarily that there isn't a benefit to be had with aspirin in this age group, because as you point out, the studies say, say there is, but it's counterbalanced, unfortunately, by that increased risk of bleed. And even in low-dose aspirin, that increased risk of bleed is unfortunately still there. So then, you know, as I was asking before, you know, now, you know, what do you do in the community pharmacy? Because I'm sure people do come up to you and say, hey, you know, my doctor said I need to take an aspirin. Is this okay? And then they show you a box of something that probably most of the time isn't even aspirin, unfortunately. Or it's just going, hey, I'm wondering, should I be taking a low-dose aspirin for heart health? I mean, you know, how do you operationalize this, do you think? Yeah. And, and before we get into the operationalized, I just, I have to repeat primary, primary, primary. That's, be, uh, <laughs> well, that's it now. For somebody right there. But I want to reiterate something that you said there, because to me, it was very, very striking. And operationally, this is what's so helpful for me. And so again, what USPSTF did is they, they did like this marginal benefit or magnitude of net benefit. And so they kind of looked at benefit minus the risk. And they said, what's our outcome? And as you said, men and women, 40 to 59 years old, with a 10% or greater 10-year CBD risk based off of that ACC-AJ calculator, they had a modest benefit in both quality-adjusted life years, so better quality for that length, and life years gained, so better length. But it was modest, very little. And, and I'll touch upon the negative in a second on that one. But the thing that jumped out to me is the initiation of aspirin use in persons aged 60 to 69 resulted in quality-adjusted life years gained that ranged from slightly negative to slightly positive and life years gain that were slightly negative or generally negative. So again, re-emphasizing that this calculation that they did for net marginal benefit showed that there wasn't actually a marginal benefit. It was negative. It was a loss. So there's harm overall when we take these things. And then if we go back to that 40 to 59, what I love about it, it's very, very patient-centered. It is a choice of the patient. You look at the recommendation and it's graded C, which says, eh, and so that means that the patient needs to be involved in their care and kind of decide what they should do. And this is, you know, dad's over 60. So, so it doesn't really play into his case per se. Part of the conversation I had with him was, hey, like, do you even want to do this? And he's like, I don't like taking pills. I don't like buying pills. It's not, as you said, very expensive. But the fact remains, he was buying it. And a lot of people have fixed income. So that is a detriment, even though we don't look at it within the clinical lens. From a, from a social determinants and patient lens, cost plays into this. Absolutely. And so if there's not a lot of benefit and they're paying money for it, like then I would say that there's even more negative associated with it. And I think that that information goes into how do we operationalize this in the pharmacy? And it really boils down to taking the time to talk to your patients. And I get that everyone, everyone has COVID exhaustion and hate their lives right now in the community setting. And we are so thankful for everything that they're doing. And it is so exhausting. And we keep rolling out more and more for the pharmacists to do. And it is hard. But part of the joy that we have in our profession is engaging and helping our patients. So if we take that moment to talk to them, we can make this intervention and help them out. And then if I say, what are the, the economic benefits to the pharmacy? If I, if I put my, my business hat on, that patient's more apt to come to me long-term because I told them why they should not take therapy instead of just selling them therapy. 
And so you create a better rapport with your patient, you get better information, and it is, you know, ultimately their decision, and you're just empowering them with the information to make that decision. And so I think it's a great way to have those conversations and to just talk to the patient when they're picking up their therapy. Do you have a history of heart attack? Do you have a history of stroke? And if not, you may not actually need this. All right. All right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's good. And, and I think you can, for our providers listening, I think you can kind of even extrapolate that in that 40 to 59 group, too, because one, one of the big criticisms already in cardiology circles that has come up from these draft guidelines is cardiologists asking, where's the calcium score? Because remember that we can now check coronary calcium scores on people to get an idea of their overall burden of atherosclerotic plaque, right? And while it's not a perfect score by any means, and you have to, you have to take the, those results with kind of a, a grain of salt, there is data, notably a paper called the Dallas Heart Study that came out that showed that people who have coronary calcium scores, you know, have a higher cumulative incidence of atherosclerotic events compared to those with zero. And so in my own case, when I turned 50, I was kind of on the, on the fence about it. I was like, gee, I know there's data that shows there's primary prevention, but as Jake pointed out, I've also seen, you know, plenty of people have GI bleeds and I don't want that either. So for me personally, the tie break was getting a calcium score. Unfortunately, in my case, it was zero. So I felt like between that and, and a low ASCVD score that this was the harms that outweighed the risk. And so I think that's the key is that you're right, popular media and public media, you know, I said, you know, stop all aspirin over age 60 if you don't have history of cardiovascular disease. And even if you're 40 to 59, you know, you really ought to think twice about it. I think there's absolutely going to be cases where we have outside data beyond the ASCBD score that may educate a patient to say, you know, I, you know, I get that my, you know, my ASCBD risk score is 8% or 7%. So I'm not at that 10% threshold, but I also have a significant atherosclerotic plaque on my calcium scoring. So maybe the benefit is, is worth it for me. And so, you know, as you said, making it more patient-centered, I think in, in the clinic setting, as well as, as the community pharmacy setting makes absolute sense. And then of course, the last thing they did discuss, which is always a bugaboo of mine, and I'm, I'm forever talking to my residents and, and students about is the dose of aspirin. And they do finally and continually point out that low dose aspirin is the way to go. We've known for a long, long time that the antiplatelet dose of aspirin is far lower than the 325 milligrams of aspirin. Um, I remember reading a paper clean back in pharmacy school, and this was back in the, in the early 90s that suggested that you really only need about 25 milligrams of aspirin to actually effectively block platelets. And so doses above that, and there's been some retrospective studies that have suggested this, uh, really just give you side effects. And so again, if you're trying to equalize that balance between the risks and the harms, you know, a full dose aspirin is just going to increase your risk of harms, and it doesn't seem to have any added benefit. So, you know, again, for the providers recommending doses, for the pharmacists recommending doses, my kind of go-to is that on the whole, I mean, there's always exceptions, of course, but on the whole, low-dose aspirin is really the way to go for most recommendations of chronic use of aspirin. Yes, if someone is having an acute MI or an acute stroke, that's a different deal. But for chronic use, baby aspirin is all you need, and you're really going to minimize the amount of, of harm that you're probably going to give at that particular dose. So again, talking about the recent task force draft guidelines for primary prevention <laughs> about uh, aspirin use uh, in patients ages 40 to 59 and patients ages 60 and older, which has definitely garnered a lot of, of lay media attention. Any last thoughts, Jake, about this? Uh, the only other thing I, I think it might be good for us to toss in there is that in this review, the, the task force did evaluate uh, the benefit on primary prevention within colorectal cancer. Yes. Uh, and they didn't really see a lot of data on that. And so these recommendations are going to replace the 2016 recommendations that were previously available. 
And in those 2016 recommendations, they did actually have thoughts on colorectal cancer prevention as well. And that's going to kind of get removed because this is going to replace it. And it really boils down to because there wasn't a lot of data to make one decision left or right. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, we've known for a long time that prostaglandin blockers do decrease polyp formation. So in fact, when patients have a familial polyposis, that's actually one of the treatments is super high doses of, of, of usually celecoxib or other drugs like that. And so, I mean, we've known that and you're right. It's, it seems that again, unless you have a, a personal history or family history of colorectal cancer, or you have a disease that puts you at or disorder, puts you at higher risk for it, um, like, you know, polyposis, it doesn't seem like there's much data on the overall benefit benefit if I'm just, hey, I don't have any of that, but I heard, I read in a paper one day that maybe aspirin decreases your risk of colon cancer. You're right. Again, I would say there's even less of an evidence base to make a recommendation there than there is in cardiovascular disease and primary prevention. So you're right. I mean, you know, so if a patient were to ask you about, well, hey, you know, what about colorectal cancer? I, I read once that, that aspirin helps prevent that. In primary prevention, we just don't have a lot of data on that, unfortunately. And even in secondary prevention, there's more evidence and it probably, there probably is a better benefit to risk ratio. But again, it's, it's, it's much grayer, shall we say, than the cardiovascular, which, as you might imagine, has been studied much more extensively. So, so that's it for this episode of Game Changers. I want to thank Jake Galdo for joining me, as always, my co-pilot, uh, who does a terrific job of keeping this afloat. Thanks for listening. Remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.